good afternoon and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. This is episode 16, Scraps and Scrolls, for part four of History of Westeros's Valoridas project. This is the companion podcast where I get to go through all the notes that didn't make it through during uh, Aziz and the Shea's live stream on Sunday because, as you know by now, there's just too much from these chapters to get done all in one sitting so hello welcome back i hope you enjoyed the first of these companion podcasts last week a uh, quick housekeeping note next week we won't have an episode because uh the guys are taking a one week break while they're away so they get a little get a little break there as always thanks to aziz and the share for everything they do i'm sure as you guys can tell it's uh a heck of a lot of work and if i'm honest you just see the tip of the iceberg i get to see a whole lot more and I'm sure I only see a little bit more of the iceberg there's there's loads going on there so please make sure to give your thanks and likes and subscribes and everything else that they deserve to have come in their way which I'm sure you have already if you want to throw some of that my way the Isles way as well we'd be glad to have you we've had some lovely comments this week uh, both on the podcast and uh, these extra episodes it's been really lovely thank you very much for those please keep sending in comments or uh, complaints or suggestions whatever you want we're always happy to hear from you we've especially had a lot of people very excited about lauren shakes of thrones coming on that episode should be with you soon maybe i will even um, be able to get that up for the weekend so you can have something to do while he's easing the show away no promises though don't hold me to that i'm just being hopeful. Also got to thank Aziz for uh, the multiple shout outs from Sunday's live stream. That's great. I'm glad uh, we're getting people over from the Flick community and the History of West History of Westeros community and anyone in general, just throw them all in the mixing pot and we'll all enjoy these chapters together. One last bit of teeny tiny um housekeeping from me. Uh, as you know I don't really like to go on about myself too much. You might disagree but in my in my theory I don't um, but today is quite a special day because I've had some of my own fiction published for the first time just flash fiction, just a hundred word stories but still, step in the right direction I'm sure any of you out there who uh, consider themselves creators, whether that's via art or writing or music or whatever you're doing, I'm sure you can appreciate you know the small steps feel like big ones so uh, yeah, just wanted to mention that very quickly, I won't go on about it anymore I promise also, just extra, just so you know, uh, like I mentioned last week, having some thoughts about Patreon, and um, we've had some feedback on that, so that's lovely. We'll let you know when time comes, what's happening with that. There's also some other stuff in the works, by which I mean it's kind of tumbling around in my head, about uh, non-Song of Ice and Fire projects, podcast-wise. We'll we'll come to that when we get there. You might not be interested, I don't know. who knows. But... Um, just be just be uh, safe in the knowledge that stuff is happening here on the aisle and, you know, we're never resting here. Oh, no, never resting. Back to business then. So this is, as I said, part four of 11 for Game of Thrones, um, the first book specifically. Part four of 11 of the Valar Rereaders project. And today I'll be going through the extra notes for Eddard Free. Bran Free, Catelyn 4, John 3, Eddard 4, Tyrion 3, and Arya 2. And I'm very glad to hear that Aziz and Chef liked the idea of switching those uh, numbered chapter titles up to 
the friends the one with kind of uh, format unfortunately they're probably going to come up with much uh, funnier titles than i but I, i'm going to keep it up anyway so we begin with eddard 3 which uh, just to remind you is the second half of this whole uh, die wolf dying incident uh, we had we ended last week with sansa's chapter where things go wrong with joffrey and aya this is the aftermath with um ned finding aya and going before robert and it all not going well so eddard three the one with the dead direwolf <laughs> we'll, we'll just put it bluntly um right so straight into it then normally these first chapters i think as these does get through most of the notes but there's still a few to go through and the sitch, I think mainly this chapter reflects on Robert, Robert as a king, like as he's got to in the live stream. Um, this is the build-up of us being told exactly who Robert is. We've got the personal from, uh, we've got the physical from Ned, the changes that we've seen. And then we've got his personality, his inner thoughts. They still, they haven't changed, whereas his appearance has. And now we're actually seeing King Robert doing kingly things. And especially this, you know, sitting in judgment for two opposite opposite claimants, that's what kings are for, isn't it, really? They're supposed to be above everyone else. They sort it all out. They are ruling. It's even kind of, you know, the Bible story. So we've got Robert here sitting in, you know, his, his throne for the day, if you like, at Castle Darry, laying down judgment on these two opposing sides, one of his son, one of Aya. Sansa's kind of mixed up in there as well. Then he's got Ned and Cersei on the opposite battle lines as well. And that's where he's supposed to be the king and sort everyone, everything out. And as we see, doesn't really do a very good job. Which is ironic when you think about it because his brother Stannis, he's like he's made for the, <laughs> the role of judge. Whether you think he is actually good at it or not, he would love this probably, you know. Two opposite sides, bing, bang, bosh, we're done by lunchtime. He wouldn't mess around. He definitely wouldn't walk out or settle for... He would probably wouldn't settle for Cersei or Ned, questioning him, to be honest. It would just be done, done, done. In the same vein, Robert relates to Ned. Obviously, that relationship is one of the... It really is one of the key parts of this whole book, but we don't... Obviously, with them both dying, we're not going to see again. But... This, as he's mentioned, I wanted to know about how it being in Castle Dowry specifically puts you back in mind of the rebellion. They've already had the, all the rebellion talk back on the King's Road, always talking about the Arno, always talking about Targaryens. This is for something Ned has probably tried to forget as much as possible, or at least not talk about as much as possible. He's had to think about it a lot recently, so all very present in his mind. And again, this is coming up because he's seeing that the war, which remember completely changed Ned's life, completely changed the direction of everything. His father died, his brother died, his sister died. And even though those were, they kind of bookended the war, it's still all mixed up in Ned's head. And that war is supposed to be about putting someone worthy on the crown and taking away the evil king. You know, fairy tale type stuff. There's a little bit of Sansa in there. If you want to look at it really basically, oh, we've got an evil king. He's killed some of my family. Let's take him away. My friend is nice. Let's put him on the throne in, in his most basic terms. And now he's saying, oh, that's not really happened. He explicitly says it later on, the quote, uh, what did we rise against Ares for if not to put an end to the murder of children? And obviously that 
links very heavily to what happens at the end of this chapter. It's all just bad association for Ned. He knows where he's going, which we'll come to in a moment when we get to his next chapter. It's all just coming right back up for him. All these decisions that he's made, this burden that he's had to bear for however many years it is, and it doesn't seem worth it all of a sudden. Okay, this is first instance of seeing Robert ruling, so maybe Ned thinks I can give him a bit of pass, but at the same time, he's really got to be thinking, I gave everything up and this is what we've got. And as we know as readers, it's gonna, that's only going to get worse. I no- made a note for Aziz that um, as we go, Ned does realise it's the people around Robert as much as it's Robert himself. It's the Circes and your uh, little fingers, the small councils, the whole structure the whole um, setup of King's Landing and rule is completely rotten. That doesn't excuse Robert at all. Uh, he's complicit in that. He's the one who's turned his back and is quite happy to be blind as long as nothing bothers him, really. He doesn't care, really, what Littlefinger's up to with the finances. He's not really bothered how Varys gets his whispers. Doesn't really matter as long as no one bothers him with it. He's completely, completely complicit. It's just a good... Uh, album name if anyone wants to borrow that and it must be hard for Ned he obviously all those years ago he wanted his best friend and he thought his best friend would be a good king but that's really hard to kind of keep up with now given the state that the realm is in and that's not to say you know I'm sure if you ask Ned well do you want the dead uh, do you want the mad king back instead you're probably going to choose Robert but still the chapter does end with a dead child. It does remind Ned of what happened with Ares. And again, it's just going to get worse and worse as Ned finds out more and more about what's going on here. You can really see, we mentioned on Sunday about the language used. Robert is slumped in his chair. He's just hes not bothered. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He doesn't want to go up against Cersei or anyone really. Why is everyone bothering him with this stuff? Just let me go hunting, is I imagine what he, he's thinking. And it's really that... Um, if you want to talk psychology, he wants to avoid, he has a need to avoid failure. Some people have a need to achieve success, they want to show off. Some want to slink off, they don't want the possibility of failure. That's That seems like Robert to me. He'd rather just give up and not pay attention than try. He'd rather do that than try and be knocked down, so he just doesn't bother. He's not even doing proper sentences, you know, he walks out eventually, he doesn't do, he doesn't execute Lady when... Um, Ned challenges him to do it himself. And his indecision really shows the quality of ruling at King's Landing, as we just mentioned. Ned, he says about how this should have been done privately, and by doing it in the audience chamber, Robert really does undermine the hand of the King's authority, the Queen's authority, Prince Joffrey's authority, and his own. All he's doing is telegraphing everyone in that room in Castle Darry, who, reminder, were... Targaryen loyalists and are probably on some level kind of smirking behind their hands here saying yeah see this is what we meant you shouldn't be king um, he's really just undermined half of the important people in his court he sends Renly out as well Renly's a member of the small council he has to be sent out for laughing that's the kind of court we've got that you've got to send out people out for laughing it's like the naughty class at school like I said Ned he had this vision or he has this vision of why Robert should have been king everyone agreed not everyone but you know he was the popular one the popular choice he was able to recruit people because of his charisma etc and we've already had in the first quarter of this book 
you know, Ned, John, Sansa, they've all got different thoughts about how people look kingly. If you remember, John thought about Jamie looking kingly and Sansa has, um, she's really good POV for how people appear and come off physically in their first chapters because she's so good at paying attention. But we know going forward, Sansa and Ned especially, they're both quickly seeing in these two chapters back to back that appearance it isn't enough just pure strength it isn't enough for ruling um and as he's mentioned in my note about how the war of the five kings you have all these different kings representing different uh, ideas about what ruling is and why they deserve to rule and i think george is already getting across that it's not it's not just you know who's the strongest who's the most popular it's how you rule that's what's important it's how you actually do the job and at the same time, I think he's questioning the entire state, the entire um, concept of feudalism, because obviously, as we know, in this medieval-type world, it's really, you know, you just get born into power. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And it's nothing to do with uh, whether you're actually any good. No one bothers looking at your qualifications, which is, I think we can probably agree, not the best way to go about things. So George is already throwing throwing that in our face to question this entire setup of this world and how everything has shaken out. I think this question of how you rule and what makes, why do you deserve to rule basically, I think that was going to be a question for the end of the series as well as we have these, this next generation of rulers coming. We had the, had the Baratheon beginning with Robert, then we had the War of Five Kings, all them, that's kind of ended. We've got kind of Cersei in the middle now just messing everything up. And then I think we're going to have this last hurrah for who rules between between fake Aegon and Daenerys. Maybe Jon is in there. And they're all going to have similar questions about well, why is it you rule over the next person. I find it interesting when Ned challenges Robert at the end of his quote-unquote sentencing, his decision... Even the mention of Lyanna doesn't get through to Robert here. And given what we had in Ned's last chapter about how, and in the first one as well in the crypt, how Lyanna still very much dominates Robert's mind, even that's not getting through to him. Although, to be fair, having said that, if it did, it probably wouldn't have gone down too well with Cersei if uh, you, know, you just mentioned Robert's ex. In Robert's mind, I mean that. Not, not in reality, of course. But in Robert's mind, if you mention his ex and that changes his decision not going to look too good for your wife in the same vein his challenge of uh, courage he's, he's actually questioning the king's courage at this point uh, the courage of to do it himself and you've got to think that's a pretty big test of friendship boundaries already you know ned's already getting up against the war it's going to get worse as as we know but yeah that's pretty bad considering they've only, they're not even at the capital yet. Scrolling down, then moving towards uh, the actual execution of Lady Herself and thinking a bit more about Sansa and the deaths at the end of the chapter. We said a lot last week about Sansa wanting to live her fairy tale and it's being it's ruined. Uh, ruined is her favourite word. And you know she's always worried, I said last week, about something external coming and taking it away. Normally Aya is the culprit, but she's always worried about something coming in and ruining her her day. And she was right, to be fair, something bad did come and it was actually the Lannisters, but obviously Sansa's not seeing it that way. I think Lady and Micah's deaths tie directly into Sansa and Aya's 
arcs. Lady's death, obviously, um, relates to how Sansa herself is going to come to hate the the life of a lady, um, or the life of a lady that she experiences in King's Landing, obviously. Um, that death of the dream about nobility and like, living in the palace, that's all going to be taken away from her. It's that uh, theft of innocence. This is the first step on that path. And whereas Aya, uh, she is going to be thrust the other way, where Sansa stays with nobility. Aya is going to be thrust into the world of the small folk and the riverlands and all the atrocities that go there. And again, this is the first step on that path. Micah, the small folk, a riverlander, he's the first to go, but it's, this is just the first drip of the rainfall that both Aya and Sansa are going to have to put up with. As for Sandor, his part in all this is killing of Micah. Uh, there's a good catch by Aziz of um, it being Sandor and Gregor for dead children for Ned. Uh, that, that connection of dead children for Ned back in the day in the Red Keep and now um, we said about the cloaks and Aziz made a good catch about it, that both <laughs> involving Kagains. I was thinking actually that it's fitting Sandor is involved in this moment of Micah and Lady Dime, because like we just said, it's innocence lost, and that's his whole spiel, isn't it? He was a little boy happily playing with his uh, little knight toy, or whatever, horse toy, whatever it was, and Gregor came and took that and his innocence away from him completely, and look what's happened to him. So it's a little a warning sign of what can really go wrong when something like this happens to you in childhood. And what about Joffrey then? If we're looking at characters other than the POVs themselves Joffrey I was very glad Aziz chose to uh, read out my thoughts about how uh, you know it's like a bad insurance claim as like one of those adverts Joffrey comes wheeled in looking looking like he's been through the wars and he has these big bandages on and etc maybe he adds a little tiny Tim cough for sympathy and I know the show added the extra scenes between Cersei and Joffrey when they get to King's Landing, but we don't obviously don't get that in the books. And I'm pretty sure I did check that, you know, these these scars, these lifelong scars, as Cersei puts it, we never hear about those again. Obviously, we don't have Joffrey's POV, but we do see them quite a lot, and they're, they're never brought up again, so I'm sure they're not that bad. We also had that note on the interaction between Joffrey and Renly, and obviously the male influence again, and I just wanted to add to that that it does set more seeds for the coming more of the five kings not that i'm sure this isn't what set joffrey against renly but you know it does all pile up these personal relationships seeping into great big matters of state that's i think we know by now that's kind of the point of the whole story how it's a a people's story and robert's promise of discipline probably just means yet more slaps for joffrey if we're being honest i don't what else can we imagine robert's idea of discipline to be probably just hit Joffrey uh two minutes later and that would be the end of it in his mind and again off he'd go and ignore that the whole thing ever happened so more more good <laughs> raising for Joffrey mentioned about Cersei already and it really strikes me that she's already setting up Ned as an enemy when she didn't really need to I understand uh, some people in the chat made some good comments about why um Cersei did want rid of the direwolves but I still think it's a bit far to go at this point at this juncture they're not even at the city and considering what she's planning on doing and how it 
would really help to have Ned not go against her. I'm sure she is smart enough to realise that Ned is going to go against her, but you don't need to antagonise at this point. Um, but like, as he's mentioned, that's just Cersei all over. Like We're going to see in Feast and going forward, I'm sure. Cersei is more about the personal score and the slights and the playground stuff than she is thinking about actual good policy or strategy, tactics, etc. Uh, someone, I'm, I'm, I do apologise that I've forgotten the name of who it was, but someone from the Facebook group, I believe, pointed out that this might be early Valencar prophecy stuff regarding Sansa. That was a great catch. I didn't I didn't get that at all, so I just wanted to shout out that person, even though I've messed up the shout out. My fault. Some little extra notes here that we didn't get time for. I almost view this chapter and Sansa's previous that we finished on last week. It's like one big chapter, really, just sort of POV switch in the middle. We don't often get one POV following on from the other on the same subject, um, even though they are separated by four days. We, we, we do at the beginning because they're so close to each other and we have all these characters in the same spot. But going forward, after Game of Thrones, it's really just the Blackwater. It happens a lot of the game, end of Game of Thrones when Ned's betrayed. But after that, it's the, kind of the Blackwater and then we don't really get it much more. It'll be less, obviously, as we go on and everyone spreads out. But in theory... Maybe we can expect more of that as the POV slowly return to the same areas. Maybe the Battle of the Fire coming in Marine, for example. We could see an example of that. I do want to highlight some interesting language in the text that um, piqued my interest this time around. So Ned think, and Ned says right at the beginning, are men or Lannisters? And so Ned isn't asking if it is Lannister men. There's the apostrophe in there. He's using the possessive or whatever the term is. As in, is it Cersei's men? He, he's not thinking of Jamie. Jamie's out, out on the hunt, so he must. He's thinking as Cersei, you know, as the enemy again. Normally, in Ned's head, he refers to Cersei just as the queen, but he's already marking her as his opposite. Like we just said, Cersei is making an enemy of him. Ned is thinking of her as an enemy, and it's all it's all going to blow up later, as we know. Uh, another quote. Ned put ice in his voice, ice specifically, and then later it says his voice ringing cold and sharp as steel. And that's just some clever wordplay, some clever wordplay from George to associate Ned's anger with both the cold and obviously his own weapon, ice, the sword, the great sword. And it was really cool actually to get a, a bit of hint of Ned fury. We never really see him too often let loose, and it's just um, you know because he's so cold and quiet. They're the ones you got to watch. I think we always imagine what would have happened if Ned had lived and been let loose in the War of Five Kings and the vengeance he might have gone to take. But we we just have to imagine, unfortunately, on that on that count. They do call him the Quiet Wolf, but there is no doubt in my mind he's got a lot of his older brother Brandon in him. They've got the wolf blood. Even if it doesn't come out as much in him, it's still there. Finally, last point on this chapter, this is the second of the big emotional gut punches. Um, first being Bran, uh, thrown from the tower, obviously. That's quite a, for first time readers, that's quite a shock so early in the book. And I think this is another one. It's another key moment that I imagine stuck with most readers the first time, I'm sure. And show viewers also, which I think is only the end of the second episode. So they get to it quite quickly. But anyway, onward, onward. 
Oh, we do actually see here as I'm scrolling down Raventree, who's very active both in the live stream chat and the Flick community, has some really good thoughts. They thought um, a, a similar thing about the Targaryen castle that you know that it's a great setting for this scene specifically, and that he and Robin were not fighting for the same thing all these years, and such and such. So good to see thinking of the same thing. So good catch, Raventree. Onward onward to Bran Free, which I will call the Weird Dream One. Yeah. This is pretty unique uh, as chapters go in the Song of Ice and Fire. It's all Bran's dream, and it's uh, probably quite famous as a chapter because it's the whole opening into the world of the Free Eyed Crow and basically all of Bran's future storyline and possibly the storyline of the entire series. It's uh, beautiful to read, it inspires some beautiful imagery and it's definitely been analysed over and over and over again by people for, far more skilled than I. There's just so much foreshadowing and uh, hints on the future and so much so much under the, under the layers, under those onion layers type things um, and to be honest with you, Aziz pretty much covered all of it, like I say this isn't really my forte and um i didn't have too many extra notes but i will go through what i did have as he's mentioned my <laughs> very show influenced uh head cannon or tinfoil about the first line uh it seemed as though he'd been falling for years and much like last week i had a bit of hodor theory about whether bran is really going to time travel or whatever you want to call it, I don't think time travel is really the, the proper term, but that stuff that we see in the Hold the Door episode, I wonder if this is a line, this line is a clue to that, but I think I'm probably looking just a bit too closely and my mind is still being warped by that revelation in season six, so I really do hope there's some kind of resolution on this and win so I can stop wondering, because as you can see, it's driving me to some quite strange places. Moving forward, Aziz mentioned about the tinkering with memories and how you know, creepy and invasive that is. But I'm also interested to know why Blood Raven, Free-Eyed Crow... I'm also interested to know why he chose to remove the, the memory. Because does it change all that much plot-wise, if we think about it? Uh, I wonder if it could have been to save Bran's mind, maybe you know he's still just a child, maybe he just couldn't cope with the idea of someone trying to murder him, maybe that would have kind of messed up his presumably fragile mind at the moment uh, perhaps it was a way to save Bran from looking southward and being concerned with all the politics of the south, instead pointing him northward and to those to that, that great passage of him seeing further and further into the true north past the wall but I just, yeah, I just think it wouldn't really have changed all that much in the plot, you know. Might have had Catelyn's and Ned's theories about the Lannisters being enemies. They might have confirmed it a bit quicker. We might have moved along a bit faster. But Ned is already far too involved in King's Landing to withdraw. Um, you know, even then, it'd be just his word against. We'd just get another another version of what we just saw, really, just on a larger scale. I don't think, really, it would have changed all that much. So it's just interesting that Bloodraven chose to concentrate on that. And I think, actually, that's about it for Brand Free. So I'm going to leave it there. We'll move on quickly to Catelyn 4, where we do we do look south and we do travel 
Two Kings Landing for the first time. There's lots and lots in this chapter. I don't think I actually even got all my notes down for Aziz because there's just this is too much. We meet two of the biggest players. We obviously meet one of the major settings of the whole series. And yeah, there's a whole bunch to get through, which Aziz did a great job of <laughs> sifting through everything I wrote down because it's a bit here and there. There's too much to think about at once. I've got to be honest, most of those thoughts were centred around Littlefinger. This is the introductory chapter to Littlefinger. This is the first we get of him, and yeah, there's just a lot to think about. So jumping right in, the lie about this dagger. This really, I've not thought about it that much before, because as we know, it just kind of fizzle out after this book. But upon rereading, it just it really confused me about why why this lie doesn't really make sense to me i'm not sure if this uh, plot thread was entirely fleshed out i suggested as aziz said that maybe like well i guess he had to have come up with this lie genuinely on the spot and maybe that well that makes sense about why it sucks so much it seems easily disapprove disapprovable by catelyn or ned you've only got to ask like not that many people in the court about um what happened at that tourney that Littlefinger mentions or the dagger going north, it just seems to, it would collapse straight away. I'm guessing Littlefinger's hoping, you know, that Cat's going to leave soon and Ned's going to be way too distracted with other stuff, but oh, it just really, really bothered me. Um, in the same vein, and I know this was mentioned on Sunday about, this is all in front of Varys. Talk about handing someone a loaded crossbow. Varys? Crossbow, yeah, yeah. You know, he Varys could have done anything with this information if he had wanted to. You know, not really the type of person you want to give ammunition to. So yeah, I don't. I just don't know if this is George getting used to Littlefinger and the intricacies of this court, as we know it's going to be. You know, it's a minefield of political intrigue, whatever you want to call it. So I don't know sure if it's just George getting a handle on that, or has Littlefinger got better since then because you know if he's telling these kind of lies on the spot i would have thought it wouldn't make it past book one but what do i know uh and disease also mentioned about the techniques and little finger trying to be buddy buddy with catelyn and i can't remember off the top of my head but you know there's a quote that little fingers a friend to everyone or something along those lines and you know you can see that here he is the the charmer the um the charisma guy, even though I'm not sure how much that actually works. I think that's his approach and it might normally, it might get results, but I still don't think anyone actually really likes him. He's just got too many influences to ignore. That's my theory. Um, Catelyn very quickly relates Littlefinger's entire childhood to us in like a paragraph to Sir Roderick while they're still sailing on the um, on the ship. I'm going to come back to this again in a minute because um, Aziz did get to my note on how Peter really does have the classic hero story, but I'm going to expand a little bit on that when we come to it. We'll get to Varys first because I actually think we get a bit more on Littlefinger in it at Odd 4, so we'll come back to that. Varys then, the, the different techniques, like we just said, Littlefinger, he's buddy-buddy, Mr. Chatty, he, if anything, over-talks like we can... See with that lie, um, you know he loves this classic, classic villain monologue stuff. He just loves the sound of his own voice. Varys is much, much better at 
restraining himself. Um, I don't think, and I'll come to this, that Littlefinger is capable of not taking opportunities to get a dig in or to show off, to be honest. Whereas Varys, he keeps everything to himself, way more than we even know. And, you know, he's happy to play the fool or play the the guy who doesn't know anything, etc., etc. But we know really what the deal is with him and how he uses that to his advantage. It's going to stretch over the entire series with everything with Tyrion and uh, the dance epilogue, etc., etc. Though I am interested in Varys's thinking here about, you know, he had the information about Catelyn's arrival and I just think maybe if he had chosen not to inform Littlefinger or maybe not even to intervene himself and just kind of observed Cat going to Ned. It might have helped him later on drive Ned against Peter slash Littlefinger in the first place. Possibly that maybe that could have saved Ned or changed what happens after Robert's death. Maybe it doesn't. It's, you know, so much goes on. This, these books and these plots are too complex to just pull one thread away and, and think we know what's going on. But interesting that he chose to involve little finger at this point maybe just uh wanted to get on the good side some miscellaneous notes on this chapter at the end um i had a thought last year at some point about what would have happened if sansa and aya had got on uh the ship i think it's the wind witch that ned commissions near the end of the book to take them back to winterfell um and obviously they, they don't get on it because everything goes down but if they had got on um i just wanted if they had gone to Dragonstone to deliver Ned's message, if they would have ended up prisoners of war, you know, Stannis wasn't letting ships leave by that point, bit iffy on the timing, but what could have happened? Uh, and I was just reminded of that because Catelyn mentions that the storms nearly blow them to Dragonstone, where obviously Stannis is. I do think the further we go into this book, uh, obviously you don't realise it on your first read because you don't know anything about Stannis, but looking back, as a reread, you really feel this big, big gap, this vacuum left by Stannis not being there. He's mentioned so much and referred to so much for someone who isn't there, we don't even know yet. Um, so looking back, so the idea of Catelyn getting blown to Dragonstone and meeting him on top of everyone else she meets in this book just had me wondering about what could have happened if there's any way for their separate uh, information that they had to combine and change anything there. If any alliance could have been forged or whether she could have got Ned to Stannis or Stannis to Ned or, or anything of that nature. Just definitely something fun to think about. And I definitely do like the idea of a, a Ned slash Stannis alliance. It would just have been interesting to see. Okay, moving on quickly. We're getting through them. John 3. Oh, I didn't give Catelyn 4 a, a, a name, did I? Are we going to call Catelyn Four? Um, I'm just going to call it the one with the stupid lie. I, I think we can all remember that. There's only one stupid lie in, in the Song of Ice and Fire, I'm pretty sure, so that name should stand. Back to John Three, which I will easily know the name of this one. It's the one with Moody Judy, which I think, as he's mentioned, is the, what I've been referring to the chapter as in our notes. It's Peak John... Being grumpy, being a bit emo, being not too happy. Um, you can see why, to be fair. You know, he's at the end of the world in an ice prison. I'm sure I would be too. But it's really, you know, John gets referred to as morose and, um, you know, there's always, uh, especially from the show, 
there's a Twitter account about why John smiled, etc., etc. He's the grumpy one, and this is his peak. Even considering all these bad things that happened to him later on, I still think this is the chapter where he's, he is Mr. Moody Judy. And I do wonder, uh, as he's got to a lot of my notes in his own on this chapter, because it does give us a lot, but I do wonder if John never goes above the wall, say, if he's not chosen for the Great Ranging, or the Great Ranging never happens, um, and he doesn't meet Corin, and he doesn't have to mix with the wildling and learn all those all those life lessons on the march and above the wall. I wonder if he just stays like this forever, being, you know, Moody Judy and bitter and everything. Because I think, you know, if he did, he would probably just turn to be another Alice of Fawn. I'm pretty sure that just is what Fawn is. Um, just a bitter guy that never got past being put on the wall. You can kind of see that between behind um, later in the Tyrion chapter, Alice of Fawn challenges Tyrion to a fight. And you know he, lo- he looks like an idiot because what what honor is there? What point are you trying to make that you could beat Tyrion in a sword fight? Yeah, of course you could. In the same way that John learns in this chapter, what are you from Don and Noy? You know what are you getting from beating boys who've never held a sword before? That doesn't mean anything. It's not. That's a great big asterisk on your victory. Um, so obviously jo- John does learn that lesson, as the four never did. So just interesting to think what could have happened there. And there was a big deal about John getting these leadership lessons and learning the value of a of team over self. And uh, I just do want to mention that this is something. It's a lesson that is given to a lot of characters in the book, but not taken by many. John does take it on board. We do see him as Lord Commander and um, how he can put value in certain people and realise you know, strengths and weaknesses, etc., and how it's not all about him. Some other people, they do not learn that. They're still kind of just concentrated on themselves. But this, chap- this whole chapter of John's is just another of the... Death of Dreamers, early on in Game of Thrones. We've just had Sansa, she's just had her reality ruined in the South, with everything that went on with Lady. In the same vein, Jon has got his own healthy dose, of rea- healthy dose of reality in this chapter. He's had his dream of the Noble Night's Watch, and the, um, you know he can go and be a glorious knight or whatever, and that's all gone. He's actually a skivvy in the ice prison you know horrible one of the most horrible places on earth so he's had that taken from him and it's you know just part of this realization uh, gateway that a lot of our younger povs or the younger characters in general have got to go through at this early stage in the series it does how the other recruits view john when they're thinking about when they have this conversation later they view him as the upjump lord, you know, he's been trained. He thinks he's better than them. He thinks he's worth more than them. And it just reminds me of how John actually sees Joffrey back in the early chapters. You know, he thinks Joffrey is just the jumped-up prince who thinks he's better than everyone else. So it's a funny. It's a funny catch-on perspective about John thinking this thing about someone, and then someone else thinks it about them. And there's probably someone lower than these people, maybe not, but that see it about them. It's just, it's just quite funny to think about Alice of Fawn a lot of thoughts about Alice of Fawn in this chapter as I, as I reach this subheading and it's another good example of you know George has said he writes about people everyone thinking they're the 
the hero and their own story. Not sure if Alistair's got any time for thinking about heroes, but he definitely thinks you know, he's the hard done by one. He was doing what he was supposed to down in King's Landing, defending the Targaryens. He was given the choice between dying or going to the wall, so it's obvious what he what you would take there. And he's he's plagued by all these stupid boys that have no concept of what it really means to be a man and suffer through battles and all this other tosh that he tries to pedal. Um, but it's it's interesting to try and look at it from his perspective, even though we know how wrong he is. And speaking of the, those Targaryens and what happened in Robert's Rebellion, we don't actually know um, if House Vaughn or Alyssa himself, whether he's like you know, really into Targaryen rule and thinking, no, I love the Targaryens, I will lay down my life. Or if it was more just a fact of, hey, this is who we're sworn to, so this is our duty, we've got to go and fight for this lot. And um, now he's just annoyed that he happened to be on the losing side. We don't know. We're not told that. Maybe we'll get to know. Maybe not. I do think um, this is one of the aspects that the show improved on. They gave us a lot more. As a fawn stuff, Owen Teal... He's just brilliant as as a fawn, and you do get a lot more sense of um, of him genuinely caring about the Night's Watch in the show, which I think I'm still kind of influenced on. Because when I first read this chapter, I started making notes. I was going on about you know he does at least think he's good for the watch, and you know he is trying to do the right thing. That's a lot less apparent in the books, at least at this stage. He's actually just a bully out to make himself feel better. I don't think he has any investment in bettering the watch or if he if he does he's definitely going about it the wrong way i think as he's touched on this way i'll just uh, go through my note anyway there's like a, a thousand i wrote 500 here but i think it's actually like a thousand or maybe it's 500 at the castle black um but you know they need every single one of these guys is john's been there like two weeks and it's pretty obvious to him we do not have enough people for this bloody ball so it should be so someone who's been there 20 odd years and presumably 20 odd years ago there's at least a few more so if you've actually witnessed the decline of numbers and seeing how that's affecting everything you would think you would value each person that turns up there that doesn't mean you've got to be nice to them pamper them and uh and go around you know handing them crumpets and whatever but he like generally wants to cripple some of them here i think it's obvious later on he would have been quite happy if Samuel Tarly's arm got shattered or whatever else. He's not bothered. And it just doesn't make sense to me. Does he honestly think that's serving the realm as best he can, serving the watch? That's not going to help anyone if someone's arm gets shattered and they can't hold a sword anymore. Um, speaking of, I can't remember, I think Aziz did touch on this. It has me wondering about the training that they actually do. Swordplay, you would think it would be useful just to the rangers, those who go above the wall, like a steward or um, a builder. In theory, they're never going to use swordplay because the whole idea is that the wild things never get past the wall. So training them as swordplay is a real last-ditch effort. They should be uh, archers and doing that kind of stuff. Maybe they get separate training afterwards. I don't know. We're not really given that information at least john later seems to click he, he once he's law command he does turn them all into archers but it's just interesting to think it's another another little sign that everything's not being managed properly at the wall because i just don't know why you would bother training them all in swordplay other than to 
harder than the mud maybe they're just literally doing you know basic basic yeah, I, need to, I need to just make sure you can hold a sword because you might need to who knows in terms of his mentality I do think Thorn you know these they're young boys who are coming from the south and the outside world and it's probably just bringing up bitter memories for him he was young once and then this happened to him it happened to him back down there in the south and the open world so he probably gets some enjoyment that these young boys with their lives ahead of them are now on the same road as him but at the same time he's also bitter about it and he wants them to make sure he wants them to have just a bad as bad a time as he has presumably had up there in the same vein of his his mentality we obviously we'll eventually get to this but it struck me I've never considered before what it must have been like for Alistair Thorne to be sent back down to King's Landing when he takes the hand down, the White's hand down to Tyrion in Clash of Kings. I think it's Clash of Kings. Um, you know, what What would it have been like for him to go back to the city he essentially lost his life defending? We've talked about Ned returning to a place of extreme emotional trauma and what's that like? And so... In theory, it would be the same for Thorn. He's got to go back to this place where his life changed, and it probably isn't very isn't very fun for him. Moving on from Thorn, uh, we've got Benjen a bit in this episode for the last time. Goodbye, Benjen. And uh, we had some hints on the ride up of Benjen being in in teacher mode, but now at the wall, he's fully into it. He's not Uncle Benjen. He is Mister Benjen, the uh, cool <laughs> supply teacher. You can definitely see. I forget the actor's name who plays Benjen in. Um, in the show, but I had a mass teacher like him, looked exactly like him once. Anyway, I wonder specifically if Benjen had a similar experience to John when he arrived at the wall, because obviously he was highborn and not a bastard, but you know, John is still highborn to these people. Um, he had been castle trained and um, would know how to handle himself and probably thought he was pretty good, etc., even if he was the younger, smaller brother. But I wonder if Benjen got there being a Stark and he's obviously just had a bad time of it in the uh, rebellion and then people don't care people don't care what happened to your family in the rebellion people don't care if you're a Stark whether you're first son last son whether you like Lana or not doesn't matter so maybe he does actually know what's going on in John's head here and this is why he's teaching him these lessons because um, that's the way he survived and if you flip that and think how John is looking at Benjen, again, it's not Uncle Benjen anymore. And it's another part of the the promise of the Night's Watch that's been taken away. You know, uh, his uncle was quite jovial and, and jokey down in Winterfell at the feast, and now he's got here and Uncle's gone, teacher's here. And that dream that John cooked up, it's just another part of it gone, replaced by someone pretty cold and pretty blunt. So there you go. A big part of this chapter, a very popular part of this chapter, is Donald Noy. It's really, the, probably the, the peak of the chapter. It's a really good little conversation, speech that people refer back to and the characters refer back to much, much later on. And it's some huge lessons in there that swing John in, in an entirely different direction. And obviously the most important is about, like we said, realising how good John had it compared to everyone else, um, which I think Melisandre touches on as well you know she says okay you weren't allowed the high seat but you were still at a feast john uh you're not a starving child out in the in the wilderness like so many are whatever else 
Um, um, so this can be traced right back to this first lesson and it's the beginning of John's empathy that eventually leads him to be able to integrate into the wildlings and to make the key decisions he does in dance. I don't think he gets to that point without Don Onoy. You know, we talk about Bran's third eye being opened, but all these Stark children are having their eyes opened in, in various ways by various people. And I think Don Onoy opens John's eye to what it's like for other people. And actually, John, you haven't had it the worst out of everyone uh, in the world just because... You know, Catelyn was mean to you she was you know that's not good but other people have it worse and this is how you can get on their level instead of being above them so much and again you know if John doesn't start thinking of that way as thinking of people who are different as still the same then we probably don't get what we do later on especially in regards to the wildlings crossing the wall I think Don Noy actually does a better job than Tyrion of getting John to disassociate from being mocked as a bastard. You know, he gives him this advice about just not letting that, you know, saying, yeah, brilliant, so what? Doesn't matter now, does it? And the thing that actually sticks with John more than Tyrion's advice, even if Tyrion's advice does work. We also have John's thoughts about Don Noy and his past, and uh, as he's, he mentioned about. <laughs> kind of the value system John has as a teenage boy let's remember it's a bit skewed and you know he's thinking about a hundred battles and all the wenching and drinking etc um and you know the John that we come to know obviously those things aren't particularly high in his priority list so this is all you know those priorities they change soon enough and it's all just part of killing the boy it's just part of growing up for John he starts to you know when he gets out there in the real world he starts to value what actually matters instead of what he just thinks matters. Again, it's the same thing. Sansa, she's having her her values changed very suddenly and violently. Um, and John, much the same. I do think I, we get a lot about John and his fighting, um, and you know his he says about how Donald's Donald Noy's life must have been over because he can't fight anymore with no arm and it may, it puts me in the mind of John he's thinking like a, a an, an athlete a talented athlete who can't see past his, his playing days uh, not even you know you don't even have to be a professional athlete I'm certainly not and I think this way all the time about you know playing basketball as I get older I'm sure most people do and sometimes you can't see past it and for John everything he's uh, rooted in is his ability to fight. You know, growing up as a bastard, this is what he latched onto. That was his skill to feel special and worthy. And okay, he doesn't get to sit at the table sometimes with everyone else, but he's a good fighter. And you know, if he can do that even better than Rob, then that's a step towards just making himself feel more worthy and like he should be there. And that's his. But again, later as we get further John places less value on that even though it, it does come into play certainly a lot of times his ability with sword etc but he also places much higher value on his ruling again like we talked to uh, uh, talked about earlier in Robert in Ned's chapter about Robert it's how you rule that's what matters not really how good you are with a sword even if that is quite important at times okay on to the miscellaneous the extra notes then uh, as he's mentioned about there being no 
God's Word. Um, and I'm just interested to know, um, I know they do have the God's Word above the wall, but I'm just interested to know at what point, because you would think when the Night's Watch was set up originally, the old gods would have been the main religion, surely, and for a long time after, because they had so many northerners coming when it was more popular to do, do so. They've always had southerners as well, but you would think at some point the old gods were the main religion, and that changed at some point. And I'm just wondering, I wonder when that would have been specifically, when the seven took over, because uh, we've not got there yet, but we'll see later when john says his vows it's very clear that you know it's a seven faith of the seven dominated in terms of who's what religions are up there and the new recruits at least just interesting just interesting there's lots of talk on literal and figurative cold in this chapter how the warmth of winterfell is slowly seeping out of john he's used to being warmly greeted by almost everyone not Lady Catelyn, but and now everyone's cold. Like we said, Benjamin's cold. We have all the new recruits. They have new friends. He's got to go and sit in the really cold room, and it's ironic because he doesn't realise that's actually how he comes off to everyone as well. You know, he's got there and he's being Mister Moody Judy, so he's just as cold to the other recruits. But he's just used to you know, people being nice to him first, probably because he was a acknowledged bastard, etc. And again, he had it quite well. I've written a note here. We don't need to go too far into it, but I just do. I think Tyrion gets worse at wor- gets worse and worse at taking his own advice. You know, gives John more um, more. You never let them see it bother you, etc. Uh, which is good in theory, but Tyrion's not brilliant at actually doing that. I think we can agree at least later on. Maybe he is now. Okay, Eddard Four. You know, it's funny. I didn't think we had as many. Uh, notes this week as last week but here we are clocking in an hour and there's three chapters left so uh, best get going Eddard 4 where Ned gets to uh, gets to the Red Keep and has to put up with the small council I think that's what we would call this one the one with the small council introductions um, I know we've already met Renly and Barristan on the road there but this is where we get to see not where not where the magic happens where the uh this is where the corruption happens is that a better title the one where the corruption happens no that's too that's too broad that would be almost every chapter so uh the opening line about so eddard stark rode through the towering bronze doors of the red keep sore tired hungry and irritable and we're told straight away from the opening night from the opening line there's not going to be any glory in uh, in this this job for Ned there's not that he would seek it anyway but as the second most powerful man in the country you would come to you'd think that the job comes with a bit of flash and you know you got you get the nice rooms and you get the little golden pin and whatever else but immediately Ned is at odds with that he enters a magnificent palace and he sees the lavish council room which is uh, quite funny considering you know they're supposed to have no money but they're Funnily enough, the uh, small council chambers, they're still, they're not wanting for anything. But Ed himself, uh, Ed, Ned himself, he, he's sweaty, stained, he's got dirty clothes. And it's just, you know, we're getting told very quickly by George, Ned is out of place here. He is diametrically opposed to this life and this world. Journeying south, the closer and closer it gets, the memories 
become more and more prevalent, I would imagine. There's bitter memories. They've been building on the whole journey south. And now Ned's actually here. He's actually in the building where his father and brother are brutally murdered, where he had to see the corpses of children flung before his best friend and had to watch his friend say, yep, okay, that's good. And where he also departed from to find his dying sister on top of splitting with Robert over the uh, the children. So to be back there, it's got to just be a huge emotional boulder for Ned to have to carry with him. Uh, you know, he, he's a dutiful man. He's going to get there and he's going to just try and do his job. He's not going to say, oh, I, I don't want to be here because it's got memories for me. But saying it or not, we know what he's, what he's going through at this point and it's not, not nice. As he's mentioned, the note about, and you know, it's ironic that Ned likes Varys the least based off the first impression as he's went through that. So I won't repeat there. But I guess, I suppose it's because in Ned's mind, Varys is associated, it's both associated with Ares and also, you know, he's upfront about being a liar and he's, you know, Mr. Court politics. He's, he's the master of whisperers which is just so anti-Northern, anti-Stark, and definitely anti-Ned that you can see why they, that impression rubs Ned up the wrong way. It's just it's not something he's going to stand with. It comes up later, much later in the Black Cells, that Varys thinks that he, he needed to suss out who Ned was um, before he started putting things into action. So in theory, that started here where they first meet or actually probably a bit earlier knowing Varys. But that strikes me that does strike me as odd that Varys mentions that because what we given what we know of Varys, he would be well aware of Ned's honourable reputation, definitely aware of his relationship with Robert. And even if they never directly crossed paths um back at the sack of King's Landing, Varys would still know obviously what happened there and Ned's thoughts on what happened there, presumably. And you would also think he's keeping some tabs in the north, um, even if even before this possibility of Ned coming south ever came up, you'd think that Varys has just got his little birds up there. Having said that, if anyone knows to look beneath the obvious it is Varys, so maybe he you know, he's just being a good master of whisperers and double checking that the man actually matches the reputation. Going around the room, you know, we get these introductions kind of one by one. We get a lot more talk on Renly looking like young Robert here. And I wonder I wonder how that affects those who actually did know young Robert. It kind of becomes, I think it becomes a temptation for Ned later on, the possibility of a second chance at placing a quote-unquote Robert on the throne. You know, Renly doesn't have the complications of Lyanna or dead children and nothing ever comes of it but Ned does briefly think about that because he realises how wrong off the rails Robert's gone but I think it actually probably has a much higher effect on Robert himself we spoke last week in LR2 about Robert being tied to his past and unable to move forward from it that process is probably doubly difficult if you keep seeing your younger self walking around the castle being popular and happy every morning you know, it's hard enough if you're, you know, you're once the great six foot six warrior and 
muscled like a maiden's fantasy as Nellis want to describe him and uh, you know you get up you look in the mirror and you're grey and fat and then you walk outside your bedroom door and there is your younger self maybe not as muscly and big as you were but you know it's just that constant reminder and it's probably quite annoying for Robert keeps him tethered there's also a note about Renly and Littlefinger chatting at the beginning of the meeting and how um, they are predisposed to a friendship at least or you know they don't outright hate each other given their later connection you know when Littlefinger's suggesting possible options for Ned Rennie does come up and it it made me um made me think that Littlefinger is actually quite a effective Baratheon measuring stick for what type of person they is they are so Renly he likes Littlefinger and Renly is concerned with popularity and outward appearances he enjoys the politics and the game of it all Okay, that makes sense. Stannis, on the other hand, he hates Littlefinger and he has nothing to do with intrigue and games. He's as straight talking as you can be and he's just, you know, the anti Littlefinger. So, okay, that makes sense. Two for two so far. And Robert, he's the one in the middle. He doesn't care. He doesn't care one way or the other about Littlefinger or what he's really doing. And that's reflective of his general attitude to politics and ruling as, you know, long as they keep rolling he's just going to keep turning a blind eye it doesn't matter so if you're ever wondering about the different Baratheon personalities just look at how they feel about Littlefinger and that will tell you I don't know Aziza touched on this but I, I wrote well, I probably wrote too much on this particular part but this is such a big chapter for showing us who Littlefinger is as a person um, like he's mentioned as the hero's story um I'm gonna. There was more. <laughs> there was more. I'm gonna get through all of it. So, he was a boy from a desert land, horrible land in the middle of nowhere. He gets to go to a magnificent castle. He falls in love with someone who is essentially a princess to him. They grow up together as friends, and then a proud and cocky warrior from the north appears to steal her hand in marriage. Oh no. Okay. So so far, I think we can probably recognise the themes of that story to a lot of other tales that we know. The poor boy, despite having no chance, he's so in love with the girl that he challenges the warrior, the northern warrior, to a duel. And he nearly dies in the process. So there we go, we've got a nice tragic bit. We've got him willing to lay down his life for just for love. Oh, Peter. And there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Peter has been feeding that exact story to himself for years and years. And now he sees it as kind of a justice that he's climbed he's climbed high and uh he's claimed lysa retribution and that's why he does all the terrible things that he does um you know he's he was responsible for john aaron's murder and he's taken his wife so he's replacing the one above him he's moving upwards and it's just all part of him yeah, he's just got to be thinking to himself that this is all justified, that this is him beating the bad guys. Um, and considering all that childhood stuff, Peter sees Ned as a hated enemy because he ended up marrying Peter's childhood sweetheart. He married the princess, the woman that Peter was you know, meant to be with, quote-unquote. He's also the brother of the man who nearly killed Peter. So, 
and that's ignoring that Ned is also nobility. He comes from he's like the oldest name from like one of the most famous uh, castles. Blah blah blah. Littlefinger comes from like no a rock. So all that adds up to Peter just really hating Ned. And like we said earlier, he cannot resist acting on that he can't be Varys who is cool and collected doesn't matter what you say to Varys doesn't say it doesn't matter how you act towards him Varys plays his game but Littlefinger is far too based off his own off that story off his own personal slights etc etc hence all the one-liners and the sly digs he can't help himself and you know these aren't particularly veiled one-liners and things he's saying his jokes, they're not, <laughs> firstly, they're not funny. And secondly, he's not really hiding his disdain for Ned here, even if Ned's not bothering to pick up on it. And you, I can, I've just got this image of Baelish for weeks and weeks once he finds out Ned's coming down. He's, you can just see him practicing these one-liners in front of the mirror because in his mind, he is the hero getting the zingers in on the childhood bully. Uh, which is funny because comparatively, Ned really couldn't give a shit. Pia makes all these references to maidenheads and what they got to as children and to be to be honest, Ned's just he doesn't can't even uh summon the idea that Pia would ever have actually been a threat to him in any way or was even on his level. It's just funny. And it's just a mirror to Cersei about not restraining himself and getting all these one liners in, even though he's meeting Ned for the first time and he's going to be involved in his further plots and intrigues. He just goes against that. He's too blinded by what happened in his childhood and too obsessed with selling old scores. That's just a fascinating part of the, a fascinating part of this chapter. Especially that line about melting all the Starks melt when they come south. That's just that's one of the more dickish lines in the whole series. As he's read um, my quote out, I won't repeat it here, but you know, other lords, a lot of other lords, they just would have stabbed him in the neck right there and then. They wouldn't mess around. So you're actually quite lucky that Ned's a bit calmer. As for Ned and Catelyn, uh, Aziz covered the final meeting between these two well enough, so I won't repeat. But he's really Ned's really quick off the mark about giving Catelyn the, or Catelyn the orders for the defence of the North. I just really like the idea that he holds these ideas in his head constantly. Um, he's. I like to think he's just always prepared to defend his homeland and his people at the drop of a hat even if there isn't actually a, an obvious reason I just like to think that he knows his realm well enough his people well enough of what they need to do who needs to do it and when to protect everyone it's just more of that Ned is the ultimate protector type stuff moving down to the remaining notes of this chapter there's just a few I think you know, Ned's honour, it shows why all the small, small council people are so upset that he's turned up. He is the great unbalancer. They were all quite happy in their corrupt little world. They've all got their private schemes. Cersei's got hers. Baelish has got hers. Varys, uh, Renly, even Bycel. So they kind of balance each other out. That's just how it's supposed to be. And then Ned gets there. That's why they all don't like Stannis, because he throws such a wrench in the works. The small council, they all know how to work in a corrupted world, but... Now Ned's ruined that, and it comes back to that Varys quote from later on. 
there's nothing so terrifying as a truly just man and that's what Ned is to them he's he's terrifying because he can stop all of this and to be fair to Ned I know his political time in King's Landing it, it gets cast off easily by some fans and uh, some readers but he he does nearly bring the whole thing down he does nearly pull it off and defeat defeat the uh, small council but uh Maybe if it just killed Peter outside that brothel, maybe he would have, but there we go. Okay, still going. Two left, Tyrion three. The one on top of the wall. There's a lot in here. Tyrion um, kind of comes in two parts. He has a big conversation with Dior Mormon, his first appearance, and then he has a big conversation with John actually on top of the wall. There's a lot of stuff in there. So Dior I've been thinking of a lot um, back from that previous John chapter. And the state of the watch, I think as he's got to most of this. I think we spoke enough about his focus on knights and nobles over more pragmatic choices and how that's now costing him and it costs the great ranging later on. I think that's shown very strongly in the paragraph about uh, Waymar Royce and how a new recruit comes and make demands. He makes a demand of the um, Lord Commander and he... He wins, he gets what he wants, and it's, it's just kind of unacceptable, really. You can't just come along and make demands, and off you go. Uh, Ashea made a good point on the live stream that oftentimes these nobles are the best choices for whatever Dior's giving them. We just have a good example of when it's not in Alice of Thorn, but I'm sure many times they are. And uh, I can't remember if this is Aziz or Shea or maybe someone in the chat was saying, you need these nobles to enjoy their time at the watch because then you know they, they tell their families and there's more chance of more people going up there i suppose it's true but at this point you know you really haven't got time for good pr you just need the wall to work in the first place you'll get more people up there if it works as an institution which it does not in the first place and ultimately you know you're talking about the grand mission of defending the wall which you're not going to be able to do under this kind of management I think that is the point. It's basically hypocritical. It's based on the idea that all men are equal, even bastards. That's the whole point for John. That's why he has interest in going in the first place. But Gior has proven that to be incorrect. A large part of the story is children recognising to look beyond the title or the armour and examine people's worth based on more intrinsic values. That's the whole point. And we see preteen children learn that lesson, but 68-year-old 68, 68 Dior Mormon hasn't. He hasn't learned that lesson, or at least not as well as he as he should have. And I mean, that's not, it's not fair to burden him with all the downfalls of the watch. This has been a dwindling institution for probably hundreds of years, and it just so happens he's Lord Commander when it is really obvious and it's all just kind of been dumped in his lap but that does weigh on him and you can see that in his conversation with Tyrion he's very concerned about about his honour and his legacy which we'll talk I've got another note on that in a second but he is obviously knowledgeable of the numbers and his dire situation yet is also seemingly blind to the some of the causes of the problem and that is his own management style of looking at titles rather than skills now his honor like i mentioned i think he's probably so obsessed with i mean everyone is in this series to be fair honor and legacy that's kind of what they grow up um valuing so that makes sense but he's i think he's more obsessed with it because jorah left him with neither you know jorah's 
besmirched the family name when he legged it to Essos. That's his honour gone. Plus his legacy, that was his his son. And this, you know, we get that stuff with Longcore later on. Um, and when John becomes steward, Jill tries to kind of bandage those old wounds up. But you know, he desperately wants his long years spent ruling an ice wall to mean something, especially since he kind of he, he did this voluntarily. So it, he kind of thinks this probably looks stupid if I don't get something done here. And he seems to have had ample time to improve Maz, but things have have gone against him, either by circumstance or just things out of his control, or by his poor decisions also. And I think it's probably a mix of all three that you know this isn't the ending that Geo wants. This isn't the Night's Watch that Geo wants. We get a little bit more out of form stuff in this chapter as well. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the him trying to fight Tyrion. Uh, I've got a note about how Sir Jeremy Riker, he was also sent from King's Landing by Tywin, uh, along with Alistair after the sack of King's Landing. So it makes me wonder how many more went up with them and how many are still alive on the wall. You can only assume that they were, you know, only officers and nobles probably would have been given the option of the wall in theory, but still there's probably, there might be a few more up there that we don't know about yet. So yeah, Thorn again, he wants to duel Tyrion and he just makes himself look like a moron in the process. You wouldn't be surprised if Dior gave him that position to just shut him up because he just seems like an annoying, just a exhausting guy to be around, whether you're below his um, his station or above it. You just can't imagine anyone, anyone wanting to spend time with him, but there you go. And like we said, he might claim to be invested in the watch or think that he's helping them, but... There's a bit too much of enjoyment of blittening teenagers. He, he would seemingly enjoy beating a dwarf in a duel. And he already knows that they need allies in the south. He's blinded. He'd rather antagonise Tyrion than potentially help the Watch. So we can't really claim that he has got the Night's Watch best interest at heart. Um, I think as he did a more than grand job covering all this. But you just can't. You can't say that he's really helping anything whether he believes it or not, because he's just too bitter and too twisted to be able to do that. Now on to the second half of the chapter, the John and Tyrion, they have another conversation, their last conversation atop the wall, and John, he, he really places some value in Tyrion, recognising his worth of words, so we already see those lessons from Donald Noy in the previous John chapter seeping through. Um, you can see that by what he asks Tyrion to help with Bran and I think it's quite cool that there's this overall feeling of dread in this chapter when Dior mentions um, you know, the wild things are coming south and what's out there and that's you know that's just via words and then they actually stand on top of the wall and they look out into darkness and the unknown and Tyrion mentions specifically there's no fires and it's a weird world to think of for them a world about fires be like us, you know, world about electricity. It's just strange to think of. So there's this big overarching question and darkness, and yet John still has the presence of mind to have a heartfelt message for his younger brother. And it's just that that partnership between the large message and the small individual that the books do so well. His next to the moment also seeing Tyrion afraid of what's out there, even if it is just for a heartbeat, is it's pretty cool. 
Okay, miscellaneous notes then as we race towards the end. Um, there's a fondness for both Eamon and Gior. Um, they're shared by Tyrion and John, but also by Samuel Tarly. So I wonder if we know Sam and John, obviously connected. But I wonder if there'll be some kind of connection between Sam and Tyrion at some point in the um, in the coming volumes. They are both book readers, so that would make a lot of sense. Maybe they'd be on opposite sides. Maybe they go against each other. Who knows? But that'd be cool. I think Aziz might have mentioned this, but we've got some the figures and the the numbers, the true numbers that Geor gives us. They they are sobering. A uh, hundred men at Eastwatch. The place must seem near deserted. I think it's hundred men. I could have made a mistake there, but it does put the grand great or grand ranging i forget what he calls it into perspective geo takes 300 out of a thousand men many of them being the good fighting men and the competent officers and what like 40 people return in storm of swords that's just devastating even if the wildlings weren't coming and you know everything else that happens that would have been incredibly uh, large blow to the watch regardless you've just taken such a massive chunk out of them when they're already dwindling you're not going to be able to make that up you know the numbers coming into the night's watch they're not going to jump that back up to you you've just really hit them over the head with a hammer in the same way Jewel does mention about these wildlings getting past the wall in the west past the shadow tower which again makes me question this great ranging because a lot of the best men from the Shadow Tower leave to go east and join up with Gior. You know, it doesn't seem like a good idea to take Corrin half-hand from the Shadow Tower. You probably need him if there's worldlings getting past you in those kind of numbers. And if those numbers are right, does that mean he took half of the people from the Shadow Tower? They literally halved that amount and, you know, most of them disappeared above the wall as well. So Shadow Tower must also be in real, real dire straits. Uh, I've written for for Gior and the other for Gior and the other old officers that Tyrion sups with at the beginning of the chapter. I think the state of the watch is probably old news, and maybe they don't realise it as much because they're so used to it. And also, to be fair and blunt, it's not going to be their problem for that much longer. Whereas for recruits like Jon, it's their entire lives and their future and the strict requirements of their oaths. They're harsh enough when the watch was in its glory days. Now you arrive and it's pretty pointless. It shows, you know, how men like Mance were formed. This part all goes into that equation of why someone would abandon it. I think that's why the chapter is formatted this way with Tyrion going from Geor to John. You switch from old guard to new guard and the effect of this rotten institution of the different perspectives you get on it. I think this entire chapter, it renews the question and the fear that's brought about in the prologue. You know, Geor's wondering what the wildlings are running from and, uh, you know, how, and tells us how screwed the Watch's numbers are. Um, and that's just doubled down on when John and Tyrion are on the wall looking out. And it's, it's rare that readers are given knowledge over the characters. We have more knowledge than them. That doesn't happen too much this early in the book, in the in the series. But here we are, because we know exactly what they should be afraid of. We've seen it, even if it's only just a quick hint. But we've seen the others, and 
so we know what they're afraid of and we're being reminded of this great supernatural threat while at the same time we're being told at the very same time that the biggest defense against that threat is is failing and even though um and you know first time readers wouldn't know this but even though we know now know nothing's going to happen in that um vein for quite some time yet still pretty bad and it still weighs quite heavily and I think that brings us to our final chapter of this week, Ayah 2, which is um, where Sirio gets involved. I think Sirio is a big enough character to earn a chapter title, so we'll call this one The One's the Water Dancer. I'm sure we can all tell by now that a lot of these early chapters are uh, about framing the same situation or the same plot point in uh, different views, a lot of Sanzo and I especially are about viewing what Ned is up to uh, through the eyes of children and we get a lot of that here we see Aya telling us about Sanzo and telling us about Ned specifically but the nice thing about this chapter is we also get a real uh, marking point for Aya also first a bad one and then a good one when Sirio turns up at the end but the stuff about Ned is mainly revolves around the upcoming tourney and his uh, displeasure about it but we also get hints about his life in Winterfell there's a great big quote that Aziz Nasher had before the um, you know where he sits with different people each day and learns about the what's going on basically in his world and it not only endears himself to his men but it does make him very knowledgeable on almost all aspects of Winterfell slash northern life depending off it, on whether it's someone from the castle or a visiting lord, what, what have you. It just allows him to appreciate the work being put in, how things are done. He can figure out the people he's ruling or what role they're filling, what their value is. He knows how to replace someone. Just allow, just sets himself up to make better decisions. It's just smart ruling, basically. It makes him much more valuable as a lord, knowing all these things rather than just having a name and being in charge. It's the antithesis of Robert. Robert, as long as the machine's working, he doesn't want to know a single thing about the cogs. Whereas Ned knows how important the individual person is, and he makes them feel that way. And we can still see the effects of Ned's leadership three to four years later, whatever it is, in dance. When you know they're still crying for the Ned, and they're still willing to fight for him. That Stark name still means something. So obviously, this technique, the Vedards, is working well. I mentioned I as a, a, a downward trend in this chapter first where she's thinking about what's happened with Maiko and Lady and Nymira running off and she's disillusioned that it can just happen and people from Winterfell that she's known all her life can just let it happen. And it's truly tragic to see her so disillusioned of what she's always known and loved. The ground's kind of been slept the ground has kind of been swept from under her feet in the same way that it has for Sansa. And it's just good to get across that even with her ferocity and uh, strength compared to you know, Sansa being more typical princess type, the same things happen to both of them because they are both still just children. The other Ned quote we get in this section is the famous uh, The Pack Survives little speech, little memory. I think his words on the pack represent how the Starks have always put their mission first, what comes before glory over 
uh, or petty squabbles within the family, the, the end mission comes first, the pack comes first. I think it's a microcosm of the whole story at the moment. While the Stark family remember their charge and get on with get on with it, the the world at large would rather just argue and forget the real threat. And that's you can see again. We said about Ned; he's come to this land which is just opposite to him, and his family is the same. They're about the pack, and everyone seemingly in down in the south is out for themselves. Perhaps that's why the Starks have lasted for eight thousand years or whatever it is. They always eventually band back together. And that's not to say the Starks haven't had infighting. We know they have, but almost every other family in within the series alone turns against each other one on one. You know the Greyjoys; they've got different factions: Asher, Victorian, Euron, maybe Theon eventually. And the Martells, Ariane she doesn't move against Quentin, but she was kind of had that in the back of her mind. Baratheons, obviously, don't think we need to explain that one. Lannisters, again. Targaryens, possibly coming up, who knows. So to finish off, just the final notes. A small one, there's a very big gap between I.O.S. 2 chapters. There's 15 uh, POV chapters between I.O. 1 and I.O. 2, which is only matched by Bran further on down the line. So it's a quite big gap, quite a lot for um, George asking us to remember, but it works okay. And I think as he said enough about Ned's weakness to seeming to be that he never takes control of the council, even though his position allows him to do that. He really just goes along with playing the game that the small council have set up for him. And I think reading Fire and Blood shows how you know how he's not utilising his time as, as hand. As people in the chat mentioned about Krieg and Stark, etc. It's a very good comparison. As for the tourney, obviously Ned is frustrated, um, but... Uh, if we're going to be fair, they do have their place in like this society. They could be used much better appeasing the small folk and getting the nobles together when the realm could probably use some unity. If Robert had been more interested in this kind of thing, you know, he really could have used to make some friends. We're not really given information on how his personal relationships are of the kind of like smaller lords of the realm we're not there's something that's always annoyed me we're not really told a lot about robert's reign we've got the beginning we have the Greyjoy rebellion but we don't it can't be that empty the history we're not really told how we got on with i don't know the high towers or um the malisters or whatever it might it may be the royces so you know, he could have used that to his advantage and kind of got out of the Lannister clutches a bit, but obviously the Robert we've been displayed um, isn't going to be doing that. He just wants to hit people. And Ned is right. It's not the time. <laughs> as, as useful as they might be, um, when you're that drowning in debt, it's not a good time to have a tournament. But I think that about wraps it up. That it was Aya 2, the one with the water dancer, although I didn't uh, cover Syria really, but Aziz did a good enough job of that for me. So there we go, talking in at just over an hour and a half, so even longer than last week. So as a reminder, little gap this Sunday, if I had the time I'd do a nice um, quarter of the way through roundup, but I don't think we need it. I think uh, the guys over at History of Westeros have done enough for you to be thinking about, and I probably don't have time anyway, still got a lot to do. 
So we'll be back in two weeks, assumedly, if there's notes that uh, Aziz doesn't get around to using. There probably will be, because there's always a lot of notes. Uh, so again, thank you to Aziz and Shea for, well, for letting me have this little companion podcast in the first place and everything they're doing with Valor Aridus and everyone who's taking part, because it's great fun. Keep watching the other faces, because we will have Shakes of Thrones on Shakes of Thrones on soon. Lady Buckley will reappear at some point, I do promise. And we'll have new stuff coming your way. Eventually, I promise, eventually. Okay, keep enjoying the reread, guys. Valor Aridus, and I will see you next time.